Hello, everybody. Welcome to another edition of the MLB Pipeline podcast. I'm Jason Ratliff here with Jim Callis and Sam Dykstra, who is sitting in for the vacationing Jonathan Mayo. Jonathan did his stint uh, in spring training and uh, has taken some time off. He couldn't hack it. He was worn out. Actually, I think he's he's spending his time off watching more baseball, in fact, uh, watching his son pitch in, in college. Um, Sam, Jim, welcome. Jim is out in Arizona. It's approximately 3 a.m. out there. Not quite that early, but we're recording in the morning. And Jim, up early to do this. What a trooper. I don't operate on Central Time, even though I'm on Arizona time, and since they don't have daylight savings time in Arizona, oh, yeah. it's like the equivalent of 8.20 back home for me, there so it's not that bad. I just try to operate on central time while I'm out here, so it's, I'm hanging in there, even though it's pitch black outside. Or no, it's not, the sun's coming up a little bit. So. so Jim's out in Phoenix. Sam, you have returned from Florida. How was your trip? It was great. It was great. It was good to touch base with a lot of guys and, and see uh, some farm directors in person. And, um, you know, one of the nicest things about the trip is just how normal spring training felt. Jim, I'm sure you're about to go through this now. I mean, you look at last year, we had the work stoppage and everybody was trying to rush to get ready for the season. The year before that, there were still COVID restrictions. The year before that, we barely had a spring training. So this year it felt something like normal, um, even though the WBC is kind of throwing things off a little bit. But um, yeah, really enjoyed talking to some folks. And one of my favorite things with it being normal was like bringing an iPad to Sadon Rafaela and being like, here are your best defensive plays from last year. Let's go through them together. Uh, that is not something we could have really done over Zoom. So it was, it was nice to be down there and, and, you know, be on the ground with with folks and hit up 10 camps in 10 days like everybody else is doing. Yeah, it's like it's, I actually had that discussion with Jared Banner at Cubs camp about how it's the first time since 2019 it's an actual normal spring training um because i i mean everything got shut down in the middle of spring training in 2020 and then even 2021 not only do we have all the covid protocols you had um minor league camp was kept separate from major league camp to try to keep the major leaguers you know virus free so they could start the season so like it was at a weird time of the year and then it kind of threw off our, our draft preparations at least you know from when we normally start so yeah it is nice to kind of have the yeah, last year it was kind of back to normal but it was just late because of the lockout um but yeah it, it is nice to have what feels like a normal spring training for the first time since 2019 jim and and sam you guys were were and jim currently are in spring training at spring training but you're not battling for for positions you're you're fortunately having... i don't know i feel like i'm playing for my job like if <laughs> i don't play well, i might get cut so I, mean, I think we we are in the best shape of your life I wouldn't say that. Like, I, I don't know if it, uh, Sam, do you feel like like your performance is in the books? Like, so I don't. It's like equivalent. Like you've left big league camp. Now, do you do you feel good about your role in the organization? Or are you concerned that at the end of spring training you might get cut or or traded to like a small market publication or something? Yeah, I don't know. It, it, I didn't think about this on the plane ride home, but I don't know if I've been reassigned to New York. But now it feels that way. The way you guys are describing it. <laughs> um, but no, I mean it. I did, I did some runs down there. I don't think I'm in the best shape of my life, but, you know, training for a half marathon in, in, at the end of May. So I'll get there eventually. There you go. Uh, we are going to talk about some guys who are vying for jobs in spring training. We're also going to talk to Guardians pitcher, pitching prospect Tanner Bybee, 
Um, Jonathan had a chance to sit down and talk to him uh, when he was out there. Uh, we are also going to talk about some prospects who have been performing on the big stage, the global stage in the World Baseball Classic. We're going to break down some of the best fastballs in the game among prospects. And we're going to wrap up with a question from the mailbag. Uh, let's go back to spring training. Uh, stop talking about you guys and start talking about guys that people actually care about. Not that not that no one cares about you guys, of course. But uh, let's talk about some baseball players. Uh, we did a story headed into spring training uh, where we identified one prospect per team that could be battling for an opening day roster spot. Um, now that we're a few weeks in, uh, interesting to look back at that story and see which of those players has helped themselves, which have not so much, and whether there are any guys who were not on our list that have either played their way on or injury or or something else has provided opportunity for them. Uh, let's talk first about guys who have helped themselves. Jim, who you got? Well, you know, talking about people that, that, that fans care about, unlike me and Sam, they don't care about us. Uh, <laughs> I think Anthony Volpe has a high, high you know, 80 care, especially in New York, uh, among fans. And it's interesting because coming into the year, and I'll throw out the caveat too, like, it's funny, we, we look at spring training stats, and, you know, at most a guy has like, you know, 30 plate appearances or thereabouts. And it could be against varying degrees of competition, depending on, you know, if you're playing a split squad game or you're coming late, maybe you're facing a, you know, double A guy around the big leaguer. So I don't know that spring stats mean a lot, but the Yankee shortstops jobs is interesting because Oswald Peraza, who's on the top of our prospects list, came up, played well in September, was on the ALCS roster for the Yankees, the presumed favorite to be the shortstop. And, and Personally, I probably still would go with Oswald Peraza to start the season, but Oswald Peraza is three for 17, and Anthony Volpe, who's only played a little bit in AAA, but Peraza's a year ahead of him, a year older. Anthony Volpe's hitting 321, and he's got two homers and six extra base hits and three steals, and he's coming off the first 20 homer, 50 steal season in the minors since Andrew Jones in 1995, and you know it, it's. It's great fodder for Brian Hoke and all the Yankees writers <laughs> as Anthony Volpe goes out and has another good day to wonder, like, should they go with Volpe? And, and you know, Volpe's a guy we've talked about many times on the podcast. You know, even though he was a first-round pick, he's exceeded, I think, what I mean, I don't know if he's exceeded what the Yankees hoped for, but I think if you've surveyed most teams, he's a better player than people thought he was going to be, and he was a first-round pick. You know, he was more kind of that, to some extent, you know, heady ball pay player with great instincts and high baseball IQ, but he wasn't real physical and it wasn't wow speed or, you know, wow power. And he's just worked to get a lot stronger and change his swing and get quicker. And he keeps exceeding expectations and having, you know, two years in the minors, he was our hitting prospect of the year one year. And then he had that 2050 season last year, got the slow start last year and then made adjustments and was really good. And, you know, he probably could handle the jump from, you know, only playing you know, about a month in AAA to the big leagues. And, you know, I don't, I don't necessarily know that he's going to win the job. And I don't know that, you know, because his 28 spring training at-bats have been better than Oswald Peraza's 17 spring training at-bats so far should determine it. Because I do think Peraza is a better defender 
and the Yankees could use some infield defense. But just every time Volpe goes out and does something, and it's pretty impressive. And you know, the play, the veterans on the team have like seems like it's you know a lot of those guys have spoken up about how good Volpe's looked. And I think Aaron Judge made a comment to the effect of like, look, you know, we're trying to win, and it's about having the best players on the team. Uh, and he was referencing Volpe, so it'll be. Uh, I, I'm kind of curious to see where that one goes. Like I. I Thought Oswald Peraza had that well in hand coming into the spring, and Anthony Volpe is is making you know that decision difficult. But the problem is the Yankees already have more infielders and they have spots to play them all, not necessarily good defensive shortstops. So it'll, it'll be interesting to see how that one shakes out. All right, that's obviously, as you said, Jim, an eighty care grade. Um, obviously, some someone that uh, a lot of attention has been on throughout this spring training, and be interesting to see how that shakes out. Sam, uh, tell us about uh, another prospect who was on our list of players who could be vying for opening day uh, roster spots, uh, someone who's helped himself. Yeah, I mean, this is going to come across as very New York-centric, I guess, after I said I was reassigned to New York. Uh, This is not intentional, but just looking at the list that we have, I mean, this is another top infield prospect, and he plays in the Mets system. Uh, One of my systems. Yeah, I know. Yeah, Uh, Big Apple bias, I guess. But with Brett Beatty, you should say his name. Uh, Brett Beatty was coming into spring having some major league experience last year, and then he suffered a thumb injury that required surgery, ended his season after, I think, only 11 games in the majors. Um, But, you know, you look at what the Mets roster construction is after the Carlos Correa deal fell through. Eduardo Escobar is kind of the heir apparent at third base, and Eduardo Escobar is not getting any younger. He's in his mid-30s now, 10 years in the big league switch hitter isn't exactly the above average bat that they were maybe hoping for um, when they first signed him. Brett Beatty can be that. And he showed that so far this spring, uh, you know, entering today, uh, he's 11 for 26. He's got a homer. He's got a double, an OBP above 500, an OPS above a thousand. Like Jim was saying, this is only 26 at bat so far. So you don't want to take too much out of it. But what do we know about Beatty coming into the year is that he hits the ball hard and he's done that. He's got exit velos consistently above the the hard hit rate of 95 miles an hour um, and he's been trying to elevate the ball and you know he's starting to do that a little bit better this spring as well I mean look where where he was two years ago a lot of it was on the ground now he's doing a better job of getting line drives getting fly balls allowing himself to take advantage of that power Um, the big thing for me I think is they have played him only at third base we've seen him dabble in the outfield before as the Mets try to slide pieces around, try to figure out where guys are going to land. But the fact that they're still trying to get him as much time at the hot corner as possible is a telling sign that they think he can win that job out of spring. Eduardo Escobar is currently in the WBC himself competing for Venezuela. Um, so he's not around. He's not there to try to elbow Beatty out of the way. That means more at-bats, more opportunities at third for Beatty. So would not be surprised if he wins the job. You allow Escobar to come off the bench, be a switch hit type, um, maybe he can. He's the one who can play multiple positions. Uh, but the way it's looking right now, the Mets should be in win now mode from day one. They don't have an excuse of like, oh well, we want to see Beatty get a little bit more time. He's a big piece of our future. He should be a big piece of their present. And the way he's performing is exactly how he needs to be. He's going to win the opening day sh- uh, job there at third. All right. Uh, before we move on and and talk about some guys who on the other end of the spectrum have not really helped themselves 
with her performance in spring training. I'll give you, I'm going to put you guys on the spot. I'll give you a second to pop open this, this story. If you don't have it open already, you probably do. But our, our story on uh, a prospect from each team who could vie for an opening day roster spot. Is there anyone else on there who you would say is either a lock to win a spot or uh, like who would, who would you say, and maybe it's, maybe it's the guys you just talked about, but who would you say has the best shot of being on a big league roster when, when camp breaks? That was not in the original story? No, no, that, no, somebody that was, was in the story. Oh, um, I'll throw out Grayson Rodriguez. I mean, again, he was somebody who the Orioles did not make that many moves this offseason to like shore up their rotation. And they've said, like, we expect him to win a job out of spring. And he's looked like the Grayson Rodriguez we knew. Like, I know he was coming off the latch strain last year, so maybe there's some questions of what he was like getting built up. But it seems like all the pitches are there. He's getting strikeouts again. I know it's not a good, it's great competition, but all he can do is pitch against the guys they're, they're putting him out there against. And if you think Grayson Rodriguez is going to be one of their five starters. He's easily one of their best five starters now. I mean, he's he's easily a, a candidate, I think. And, um, you know, knock on wood that he stays healthy, but, like, he'll get the opportunity that Adley Rutschman didn't get last year because he, he was injured coming out of spring. Um, so that could be a huge boon for the O's. At this point, he's pitched in three games, uh, seven and two-thirds innings, given up five runs uh, on seven hits, five walks, and the 11 strikeouts you mentioned, Sam, over seven and two-thirds innings. Jim, anyone else stand out to you? Yeah, I think the guy who would stand out for me, I'll, I'll stick with, with pitchers, would be Hunter Brown with the Astros, who, you know, when we did the story, and, and I, I cursed Sam, and I, I cursed Sam to his face behind his back, not behind his back. I didn't actually curse, but I was, Sam was like, we shouldn't pick guys who we know are going to win jobs, like Gunnar Henderson. It's like, ah, you've made this more difficult now. Um, and at the time, I went with Hunter Brown with the Astros, even though Hunter Brown had pitched really well in September for Houston and, and in the playoffs, he had three scoreless appearances in the playoffs, including one in an extra inning game, that there wasn't an obvious spot in their rotation for Hunter Brown. And it was going to be a question of, you know, do they keep him in AAA so he can stay in the rotation and get regular innings, or do they put him in the bullpen? And since then, you know, Lance McCullers has a strained elbow. Um, he's probably not going to be ready to start the season. And, you know, even though Hunter Brown has not been dominant in spring training, uh, you know, he's pitched, you know, five innings. Uh, he's struck out six, but he's walked five. You know, Cole's been a little spotty. The stuff's there. He's already pitched well in the big leagues. Um, so I think I, I'd be very shocked right now if Hunter Brown did not open the season at Houston's rotation. It seems like both of those guys, it's not so much a matter that they've gone out and really dominated. Um, they've just shown that they're they're ready and they didn't lose spots that were that were there for them okay so moving on to kind of the other side of the coin guys who have not really helped themselves who were thought to be potentially playing for roster spots sam yeah this one um has kind of been unfortunate because i think the arizona diamondbacks fifth spot in the rotation is one of the more interesting spots in a, in a spring training camp i know the D-backs don't generate a ton of excitement, but I still think they could be a dark horse. They just signed Corbin Carroll to a long-term deal. Um, you know, they I think they think they're turning a corner, and a big part of that is the starting pitching that's coming up. So you look at they had an open fit, fifth spot in the rotation. Could it be Ryan Nelson? Could it be um, Brandon Fott? Could it be Drake Jameson? Like they have options for it. Um, and the per person I put in the story was Ryan Nelson because he's our number six 
prospect uh, in that system, ranked above Jamison, ranked a little below Fott, but at least he had major league experience. You look at what he's done so far in the spring, it has not really been that great. Um, He's had three starts, um, or three appearances, I should say. He's given up eight earned runs in five and a third innings. He's walked five and only struck out four. Um, So again, small sample stuff, probably trying to find his way. Uh, But if you are in a legit competition, you don't really get many opportunities to say like, oh, that's just a a bum start. I'll come back next time. The the more those start to pile up, the more you start to fade back and are likely to open the year at AAA Reno. Like, I think the fastball is there. He's got two good breaking balls and the curveball and the slider. It's going to come around eventually. And I like him a little bit more than Jameson because he has better control. That's been the concerning thing for me, the fact that he's walked more guys than he struck out so far. I think he'll find it eventually and eventually find a spot in the Arizona rotation. But the way things are looking right now, if you are in a direct spring competition, you need to put up better numbers than Nelson has. All right. How about you, Jim? Somebody who uh, has not helped himself so far. I, I think that would be Matt Mervis with the Cubs. Um, you know, we feels like it's been, you know, we, we may have I mean, I had the longest streak of not talking about Matt Mervis on a podcast in a while since he had a spectacular season last year. He led the minors in extra base hits and total bases and RBIs and led the tie for the Arizona Fall League in home runs. It, you know, he went from non-drafted free agent in the shortened draft in 2020, where he would have been, you know, probably six to tenth round pick if we'd had round six to ten. Had a really rough pro debut in 21, and then he broke out last year. He got better swing. He made better swing decisions. The thing that was really encouraging was, you know, he's older too. You know, Mervis is, was 24 last year, and I'm sorry, yeah, he was 20. 24 last year. He started the year in high A and he was old for the league, but he started there because he'd had a bad pro debut and he hit well. And then he hit better in double A and he hit better in triple A. So, that the, you know, he, he just kept getting better as he moved up. If you were wondering, like, oh, is this going to play against better pitching? And it did. Um, and again, I mean, it, it's small sample size, but he's two for 17 with eight strikeouts with the Cubs. He's at the WBC right now. So, I mean, I'm sure the Cubs are obviously keeping an eye on him, but he's not in camp right now. He's one for six in two games for Israel. And the thing that complicates it, he really doesn't have much left to prove in the minors. Um, you know, he, he played very well for the last six weeks of the season in AAA last year. But in the offseason, the Cubs went out and they signed Eric Hosmer, another left-handed hitting first baseman, you know, who's basically playing for the Cubs on a minimum salary because the Padres are, are picking up the remainder of his contract. Um, so, like, he was a, a low-cost option. And then they went out inside Trey Mancini as a free agent. Um, and, you know, Hosmer and Mancini and Matt Mervis are all pretty much limited to first base and DH. Um, so, you know, with Mervis not performing well, I do wonder if he's going to wind up back in AAA to start the season and they give Hosmer and Mancini at-bats because the Cubs, you know, they made a lot of moves in the offseason. Um, they're looking to contend this year. It's not a developmental year like last year was for the Cubs. So Matt Mervis may have to wait a little bit longer to make his big league debut. The, the nice thing is if Hosmer doesn't perform well, they have nothing invested in him. Or if Mervis tears it up, it's not like I don't, I, I don't think Eric Hosmer is going to be an impediment if they think Matt Mervis is their best first baseman because they're both going to be making the minimum salary, at least as far as the Cubs are concerned. All right. Uh, we've talked about guys who have helped themselves, guys who have not helped themselves, and we've re- restricted it to 
players who were on our story where we identified one player per team. But I wanted to ask you guys if there's anyone that was not in that story who has helped themselves, who has kind of put their name on the radar or may now be vying for a roster spot or just has impressed throughout the early stages of spring training. Yeah, I'll throw out there, and then Jim can talk a little bit more about him because he's a Dodgers guy. But James Outman um, has had a really strong spring. He was somebody I was kind of keeping an eye on of, like, the Dodgers didn't make many moves. I mean, like, they added Jason Hayward. Is Jason Hayward going to be an outfield option for them really this year? So I thought maybe James Outman could win one of those spots. And, it, again, he's hit 391. He's slugging 783. Uh, there was a, a comment the other day from Daniel Hudson about – you know, he was coming back into rehab on the backfields and he had to go against James Outman. And he's like, you have me going up against Babe Ruth. I mean, they're recognizing what this guy can do. I know he's on the older side, um, being 25 years old for a prospect, but that just means he's about to hit his prime as a baseball player. Uh, and I think a lot of the reason why the the Dodgers didn't make as many moves this offseason is because they believe in some of these guys who are knocking on the door between Outman and Miguel Vargas, who's, who's still coming back himself, and, and you know Bobby Miller and some of the pitchers they have as well. But um, James Outman taking this opportunity and running with it you know, just solidifies who he could be. And Jim, what stood out to you about him last year? Because he's kind of a late breakout guy at, at his age. Yeah, he, he, he you know, it's, it's the classic Dodgers example. I mean, you know, Outman's a guy who hit, I think it was 249 in three seasons at Sacramento State, but he had really good physical tools, and the Dodgers thought they could help him with his swing. And so they took him the seventh-round pick, and I got to see a lot of him in the fall league, and I guess it was in 21. And he was one of the best players in the league. Like, I, every time I saw Allen in the fall league that year, he was making diving catches in the outfield. He was hitting home runs. He was stealing bases. And, you know, talking to him, I mean, it, it came down to, you know, it's always easier said than done, but it came down to his approach. And he, you know, he learned to, you know, be more selective and, you know, they made some swing changes so he could drive the ball in the air better. And, I mean, he's a potential for this package of tools. I mean, he's a center fielder. He could be a 2020 guy. And it's, it's just interesting with them, you know, for a team that, you know, the last four years, I think they've either set their franchise win record or the franchise winning percentage record. And like you said, Sam, they haven't brought in a lot of guys. And they have a lot of guys competing for spots. I mean, they have, because of Chris Taylor's flexibility, and I don't know if it's flexibility, but Max Muncy's played all over the infield, they could have an opening at second base. They could have an opening at third base. They could have an opening in the outfield. I mean, two of their projected starting outfielders are David Peralta and Trace Thompson. So they could have multiple openings, depending on where you deploy guys. And... You know, we went, I went with Miguel Vargas in our story. I could easily gone with Michael Bush, who's a top 100 prospect in the story. And James Outman isn't as famous. I think he's a little bit older. But, I mean, he, he performed. He had a great year in AAA. And, you know, you touched on their pitchers. It's the same thing. You know, Bobby Miller's the most famous guy. And Gavin Stone, who's a top 100 guy, but not as famous as Bobby Miller, could sneak into the fifth spot. Or maybe it's... Uh, you know, maybe it's Ryan Pepia, who's another top 100 prospect. And, you know, we don't have to, we, we could go on and on about these guys. You know, Christian Encarnacion Strand with the Reds is another guy, although I, I, I don't think he has enough upper level minors experience. But it seems like every day, you know, Mark Sheldon's writing a story for us about, you know, Christian Encarnacion Strand hitting another home run or, or somehow impressing the Reds. But it, it's always interesting. 
to you know try to parse you know exactly what these small sample sizes are going to mean in terms of opening day rosters. Yeah, I think Strand leads just about everybody in just about everything in offensive categories in, in spring training. And Outman, he got a little taste last year and certainly did not disappoint. In 13 at bats, had six hits, including two doubles and a home run. And that home run was this at bat off Herman Marquez, too. So it just, they were, and I know from time the Dodgers, the staff, Dave Robertson's staff, were very impressed with him. They just didn't have a spot for him last year to give him regular at bats. But he's, every time I've seen that guy, he's been really impressive. All right. And speaking of impressive, we are going to take a break. And when we come back, uh, Jonathan is going to talk to Guardians right hand pitching prospect Tanner Bybee. That's coming up next on the MLB Pipeline Podcast. Welcome back to the MLB Pipeline Podcast. Jonathan Mayo is not with us today, but he did have a chance while he was out in Arizona to sit down with one of the biggest breakout pitching prospects of the 2022 season, Tanner Bybee, who was just dominant across two levels at high A and double A. Jonathan had a chance to talk to him about his season last year and what he's looking forward to this year. So, you know, you've been here since January. Um, At a certain point in time, I'm sure you're itching to get going, but like what, you know, What's camp been like so far for you? Uh, it's been fun. It's been, um, I mean, seeing all the guys again. I mean, some guys you haven't seen since, like, last spring training. It's been it's been fun. Um, talking with some guys you haven't talked to before just because you've been here next year. Um, it's been good. It's been good working with other people, um, new staff, obviously new players too. So it's been fun getting to know some people. What's the difference? Because I would imagine last year it was your first spring training. Yeah. You're trying to get ready for a full season that you don't really know what that's going to be like no. now that you've got that kind of under your belt, you know, is it, is it how, we, how have you approached this spring differently than last year, which was probably just sort of getting your bearings? Yeah. It's, it's kind of nice this spring training just cause I feel like all of last year before the season started, you're trying to kind of like develop a routine of like what kind of works for you and what does not And I think now, like, I mean, it's obviously only been one year, but I think that, the routines have like kind of like narrowed itself down and I think it's been a lot easier to go day to day, um, week to week of like knowing what to do and knowing what kind of works for me. Yeah, I was gonna say just from a preparation standpoint, like you understand like how to take care of your body. Yeah. Like, well, I got tired in July, like yeah. what do I do to try to avoid that now? I mean, are those some of the things that you're trying to address now? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think depending on what works for you, it's going to depend on what you're going to do. And that's what I think I kind of try to emphasize with that, just because, I mean, the better you feel, I mean, that's one less thing to think about when you're pitching in, like, the dog days of August or, like, the end of July, stuff like that, like, after the All-Star break, pretty much. So, yeah. Is there anything specific that you've done, for, even just from a strength and conditioning standpoint? Um, I mean, you pitch well pretty much throughout the year, but I'm sure everyone hits that wall. You know, oh, you've yeah. never thrown that many innings in your life. Are there things you're like, all right, like, Anything specific that you've tried to to hit this off season heading into the spring? Um, 
I wouldn't say anything specific. I think that just trying to get stronger in general, obviously. I mean, every day you're trying to get stronger, trying to get better. But I think just being on top of it and kind of not, like, going through the motions throughout the day, I think is the one thing that just kind of keeps me going, I would say. I would say last year, you know, for a first full year, went about as well as you probably could have expected. Did you have any goals going in? Like, you know, I'm going to try to, you know, pitch well enough to, to get myself promoted up a level and, you know, have you had a chance to reflect on how much went really, really well for you last year? Yeah. I mean, off season's kind of a couple months. So you kind of start thinking about it. Um, my goals going into the year were to not miss a start and to pretty much strike out as many people as possible as I could. <laughs> and, and obviously like throw hard while doing it. Cause every pitcher wants to throw hard. Um, but kind of reflecting on it. I mean, it was, it was a fun year. I mean, I think I couldn't have done it with like all, without like all like the supporting cast around me, whether it was like my pitching coaches in high and double A, um, whether it was like my teammates, I think that they, I mean, we all push each other to get better every day, especially when there's, when you go through so many game days, so many times in a row, like you got to do something to kind of like keep it going, keep it fresh. So I think that without like supporting cast, I, I don't think I could have <clears throat> done as well as I did. Well, this organization has deservedly so a pretty good reputation in terms of yeah. developing pitchers. We did uh, like an executive poll, like from yeah. all our own three teams. And one of the questions in the poll was which team develops pitchers the best. And the Guardians were the clear winners of that, yeah. of that, that question. Did you know that coming in? Or is that just something now that you've learned? Not that you can compare it to 29 other teams, but like, they really kind of know what they're doing here. Yeah, uh, that was uh, my agent was telling me because I didn't really know a ton about like development and stuff. Like I was a Dodgers fan growing up because I was from Southern California, but and I knew that they could develop pitchers, but I had no idea the Guardians could develop pitchers like they do. Um, I know coming out of uh, coming out of Fullerton, they're really big in like mental fortitude kind of, and I think it was really good for me to go there and then to come here and to like really hone down whether it was like. Pitch, uh, pitch profiles, mechanics, um, just kind of like sequencing stuff like that. I think it was really good for me, and they do an amazing job at it. I mean, every day. I mean, every day they expect the highest of you, and they give you their highest. So it's really great. You mentioned uh, you know your teammates to to be able to go through kind of the same path as like Gavin. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, and obviously there are others, uh, but I'm just thinking college guys, same draft class, right? Yeah. Like, you know, that sort of thing. Um, same draft class? Do I have that right? Yeah, yeah, yeah same, same draft, draft class. class. I'm like, wait, um, same <laughs> draft class. Uh, like, obviously you're not the same pitcher, yeah. but, like, is it was it great to be able to know that, like, he he's going through taking the ball every fifth day for the first time just like you are, things like yeah. that? Yeah, I mean, he started in Lake County. Obviously he went back in a little... Um, earlier than I did but I mean seeing what he could do to hitters I think sometimes kind of a click in my mind like if he can do that like why can't I like he has his strengths and his strengths are different from my strengths and like same thing with the weaknesses but it's just like I think our mindsets are obviously the same and it's actually funny because I don't think I've ever told anyone the story about me like the connection to me and Gavin are his pitching coach in college at ECU was the pitching coach at Fullerton when he he was the one who recruited me to Fullerton when I committed there. Yeah, then he went, oh. then he, yeah, and his name is Jason Dietrich, and then he went to Oregon with George Horton, and then uh, once George Horton left Oregon, he went to ECU and coached Gavin. And now D 
Dietrich is the head coach of Fullerton. Oh. It's really, it's a really crazy connection. Yeah, that is a really crazy yeah. connection. So there was more to it than just though you're both college right-handers. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> um, wow. Um, that's fun. I mean, baseball can be really small sometimes. It's, yeah, it's but, crazy. Uh, so you know, he gets to Akron ahead of you. Mm-hmm. Does that does that give you a little extra fuel? I mean, like, all right, I want I want to be the next one who gets that bump up. I mean, yeah. Every time we pitch in spring training, we're trying to compete against each other. Um, whether it's like how hard we're throwing, how many strikeouts we have, how many outs we get. Um, every time. I mean, I respect the hell out of him. He's a great pitcher, a great dude. And I think um, I think whenever he takes the mound, I'm rooting for him. I hope he's doing the same for me. <laughs> but, um, I mean, I have the utmost respect for that guy. I think he's he's going to be great one day. One of the things that is, you know, uh, that Cleveland's been able to do, and, you know, Gavin doesn't fit in this because he kind of came in being able to throw 100 or whatever it is. But, you know, uh, it seems that they like taking guys like you who, not that you didn't have good stuff, but it was more you knew what you were doing. Yeah. You you came in with command, and then you sort of progressively throw harder without sacrificing any of of that Mm -hmm. command. When you you look at the college version of yourself, which was pretty damn good, and the version now, like – do you see like the the difference just in terms of yeah. the the you say you want to strike everyone out you have yeah. the stuff to do that man. yeah I mean in college I mean I wasn't a huge I mean like there were some years I think in twenty twenty I struck a good amount of guys out but like my last year I definitely had more innings pitched than strikeouts and I think ever since I was younger um, my dad always was about command he's like before you like hit puberty do stuff like that like I want you to fill up the zone I want you to learn how to pitch before you get like that strength because if you're just blowing dudes by all your childhood and you have no idea how to pitch and then when those guys catch up to you i mean kind of screwed yeah but it's like it's just been um since gaining velo here i mean it's been a lot it's been a lot nicer to be able to lean more on my fastball and kind of have a better pitch profile with it where in college i had to lean on everything else and not as good of a fastball and i think that was kind of has been the has been the difference maker, I think. Right. I mean, you've learned, you know, it's not like you can, just because you throw upper 90s, right, if you're, if it's down the middle of the plate, yeah, I don't care what level, it's getting hit, right? Yeah. So it's commanding it, you, you know, pitch profile, shape to your pitches, things like that. Um, I would imagine, though, that all those lessons that you learned so that, all right, I'm not commanding my fastball as today, as great as I have. Yeah. I remember that I can still actually lean on my secondary pitches because that's what I used to have to do. Yeah. I mean, um, I really like mixing. I think I like keeping guys off balance because if, or if they can't prove that they can hit something, I mean, I'll keep throwing it. Like they have to prove that they can hit all four. Cause I want to be, I want to be a pitcher who can throw any pitcher in account and keep them as off balance as I can. Because that's how I've been all of my life. And just cause I throw harder now doesn't mean that I think that I should change. I mean, maybe I can lean a little more on one side than the other, but I think that's just the way my mind works. Have you have you had because have it's rare that you have all four pitches working exactly how you want all the time. That's just not the way it, it works, right? Yeah. But, but having four distinct pitches, have, have there been times where you're like, whether it's like bullpen warming up before a start, or you get out there, you're like, all right, clearly that's not gonna. I got I got to put the slider in the back pocket today a little bit more oh, because yeah, of the other thing. Oh yeah, hundred percent. So having four to choose from, if one isn't working. You're still ahead of a lot of pitchers in this game. Yeah, I I mean, every day, I mean, say you throw 
20 starts. I mean, your one of your pitches is bound to not be be good in a, probably about 18 of them. There's probably going to be two starts in those 20 where everything's feeling good, everything's in the zone. Um, it's just kind of working out how to get people out without it. I mean, I'm sure guys in the big leagues, like I'm sure like Garrett Cole, Walker Buehler, Tyler Glasnow, like those kind of guys, Jacob DeGrom, like those guys figure out ways to get people out even when something's not working. Mm-hmm. And I mean, that's just kind of the reality of baseball. Like nothing's going to be perfect every single day. Um, and you just kind of got to work through it. Um, as you see, Gavin, you know, he pumps whatever 101, 102. Yeah, he got a speed on throwing 103. Yeah. Like, are you, you haven't, you haven't hit triple digits, have you? No, I haven't. Now, is that like, obviously you're not going to, that's not a goal. Um, well, maybe it is a goal. It'd be cool. Yeah, <laughs> It'd be right. cool. It'd be cool. <laughs> Um, yeah, I think, but, but I mean, it's not like what I mean is it's not a goal. It's it's not the end game, right? If you don't no, if you don't hit a hundred, no. you're still going to have a chance to be very yeah. successful. But when you see them do, you're like, that'd be pretty neat. Oh yeah, all the time. I mean, both those guys are unreal. I mean, their fastballs are crazy. I mean, Espino is a freak of nature. Gavin's a freak of nature. It's like being able to be like a starter that has thrown a hundred. I feel like is a very like elite club. Of like people, I mean, like pitchers in the big leagues. I mean, the only stars I can think of that have hit a uh, hit a hundred are probably like Cole Degrom. I don't know if McClanahan has. Maybe, yeah. I don't know. I'd have, I don't to, know. I'd have to look it up. Yeah, it's just like a it's, it's, very, a short it's list. yeah. It's like less than five, I would say. So it's like I think it's a very cool thing that if I did hit a hundred, that we could have three all in the minors. But I mean, two is pretty crazy. Yeah. yeah. Hopefully, one day I hit it. I mean, it's kind of crazy that you that it's not like crazy talk for you yeah. as a guy who I don't think you probably never thought about like no. throwing that hard. Right? No, no, not at all. I mean, I, I remember I think the first time I hit ninety nine was in Lake County when we were playing Fort Wayne, um, and I didn't even realize it. I just kind of it was in the first inning of one of my starts, and I was just like, I'm just gonna throw this as hard as I can, and it's like the fourth inning, and our uh, catcher who wasn't playing that day, uh, Mika comes up to me and it's like, 99. And I was like, what? What are you talking about? He's like, you hit 99 in the first inning. And I was like, what? And I was like, oh my God. That's it's, nuts. It's, it's, good that, it's good that you're not checking the radar I, yeah. on the scoreboard. And, like some, sometimes I do just to have an idea of where I'm at. But yeah. at that point, I was not. Right. Um, tell me if this is like completely off, off base and, and not to put any pressure on, on your future, but like, when when we talk about you and our end, like we see a lot of Shane Bieber in you, mm-hmm. just in terms of a guy who came out of college, with who was a you know a, more of a command guy. I think your now stuff was a little bit better than his when he first came out, but he threw increasingly harder. He commands a ball well. Is that like is that way off base? Do you look at him and and see some of yourself in him? I mean, he is also like I said that Gavin and Espino are like freakish i mean he's freakish like i haven't like been around him too much i've only said like hi and passing or whatever but i mean i watched some of his starts and it's otherworldly the way he commands the baseball um i think that i think that there could be some similarities i mean the stories could be similar i don't know if we're like the same kind of pitcher because he is like i mean he's the elite of the elite i right. think um and I think that it's just, it's fun that we can kind of look at him and see how he pitches and kind of not replicate it, but kind of like integrate it into what we're doing. 
Yeah, I just I think it's only because of the that you know pitchability piece yeah. was kind of the the main part of your profile when yeah. you, when you when you first started enter pro ball, just like his was. Yeah. Um, and uh, you know, coming from a college program that's known for developing that kind of picture. Yeah. Like, I think that's where the similarity is. It's, you know, I'm not going to go too far. You know, yeah. I'm not going to say right here while we're recording this, that you're going to go on and win a Cy Young award. And, I mean, that'd be pretty cool. <laughs> that'd too. be really cool. Yeah. Right. It's funny. Cause we're actually from the same area. I went to a rival high school of mm-hmm. mine. So it's kind of funny. And he also went to Santa Barbara and I went to Fullerton. Right. So. Right. Right. Exactly. So see, see, I'm not that far off. Base. No, no, not that far off. Base. Um, last thing for you, you know, you touch double a, yeah. uh, Obviously, you start getting the upper levels. It's hard not to think, like how much closer you are. Um, you seem like a pretty grounded guy. Like you're not getting too ahead of yourself. What do you think you need to do, because to to impact Cleveland when they need? Because you know, I think you and and Gavin especially, like you're not that far. Yeah, it's kind of. I mean, it's hard not to think about it. But then again, like every day, um, when you're pitching say it was an Akron, and you're pitching every day, I mean, if you start, if your mind starts venturing off over there, I mean, you're going to lose place of where you are in the moment, and then it could screw up your future. Um, That's what our mental guide that I learned from college used to say a lot. It's like, you have your, like, your microscope goals, which is, like, really close, and your telescope goals, which is really far away. And it's like, I mean, you're not looking at a telescope all the time. I mean, you got to look at what's kind of right in front of you, what you're going to do that day and kind of just let the, let the day stack up and let that be your resume and not let your mind kind of wander. I mean, sometimes it is hard to not let your mind wander, but cause I mean, we're all human, right. but I mean, I think it's, it's a very, it's very cool to think about sometimes, but if you think about it too often, I mean, it can kind of corrupt you a little bit. Right. I mean, the, the Akron to Cleveland, like you don't need that big of a telescope. You just have to make sure you're not looking through it too much. Yeah, exactly. Like, if you look through it too much, I mean, it's kind of, you'll probably get pissed really easily if you don't do something very well because you feel like it's so close, stuff like that. But, I mean, it's a cool thing about sometimes, for sure. Awesome. Tanner, thanks very much. Yeah, of course. Thanks very much to Tanner Bybee for joining us on the podcast. We're going to take a break. When we come back, we're going to discuss the best fastballs in the minor leagues, and we're going to spotlight some of the prospects who have been performing well in the World Baseball Classic. That's coming up next on the MLB Pipeline Podcast. Welcome back to the MLB Pipeline Podcast. Jason Ratliff, Jim Callis, Sam Dykstra. Uh, let's talk about the World Baseball Classic. Everybody's talking about it. Everybody's watching it. It's been exciting. Um, and there are a couple dozen, approximately. 23, I believe, was the exact number heading into the World Baseball Classic, number of ranked prospects. Um, we've seen some of them perform quite well. Uh, we've seen some guys who are not on uh, top 30 lists who have impressed. And uh, we saw a guy who may in the future be on a top 30 list. And prior to the World Baseball Classic, that he wouldn't have had a chance to be because he was not with an organization. But one of the 
really cool stories that Sam, you helped uh, spot. Uh, we'll we'll talk about that as well here. Let's start off with guys who have impressed, and I guess it shouldn't come as a surprise that a couple of the guys you guys want to talk about uh, are among the three players who are top 100 prospects in the tournament. Yeah, I mean, Self Freilich is our highest ranked player in the tournament, right? I, I believe that's correct um, on the top 100, and he's also that is correct. The, the best tools list on the um, top on the top 100 when we released that in January, he was the best hitter. We, we determined that he was the best hitter on the list, and so you know, big shock. You know, Sal Freilich for Italy, seven for 18, hitting 389, no strikeouts, three doubles, he's stolen a base, and um, I, I guess in a way it, it's the least surprising prospect performance to me in the entire WBC because. Self Freilich hits. I mean, he had he was as good as any college hitter in the 2021 draft, where he went 15th overall. He's hit 331 in pro ball. That includes 365 in AAA. Sam, I know you do our Brewers list, and I know uh, I, I'm sure your your love for Brewers outfield prospects can expand beyond Jackson Churio. The, the the question I want to ask you about Self Freilich, not that. WBC performance is going to help you make the big league club, but should the Brewers be considering Sal Freilich for making their opening day roster? I think Garrett Mitchell is their projected starter in center, if I have that right. Right. And I, again, I'm not saying this based on WBC percents performance. I'm saying this because he hit 365 in AAA, and he can play a really nice center field. I wonder if Sal Freilich's the best big league center field option for the Brewers right now. Yeah, I mean, I sort of felt that way, and not just because we ranked him higher. I mean, he has a long, better long-term outlook, but one thing that stood out to me last year is his strikeout rate went down the higher he went. And then you mentioned his WBC performance in that he's continuing to not strike out. It's been really impressive to see. And watching some of those Italy games, um, because you know my friend and our former colleague Tyler Mon is calling those games uh, over in Taiwan, the way he was spraying the ball around, I mean, it was hitting with authority. It was driving it up the middle. It was going to left for a double. It was using his speed. It was classic Sal Freelich. Like, I don't know what else he really needs to do. We know what he's going to be. He's going to be somebody who hits line drives, runs into the occasional homer, but does his best when he's turning singles into doubles and turning infield grounders into base hits. Um, it, it looked exactly like who we always expect Sal Freelich to be. Mitchell, I have my problems with it. I think he puts the ball up too much on the ground. He struck out a lot last year. He's dealing with a hamstring. He's faster than Freilich is, if you can believe that. So he's a better defensive center fielder, and he has a better arm. And that's probably why they're giving him the, the advantage, and they just want Freilich getting a little bit more at-bats. Like, they don't want just one year of minor league baseball. But I don't know. You look at some of their options. I know they have Tyrone Taylor, who's gone through some injury stuff. They, they brought in Brian Anderson. I think the Freelick era is going to start within the first couple of weeks, like if not the first two months. Like it's going to, it's not going to be long. If he doesn't make the opening day club, I don't think it's going to be very long before they can't keep him down any longer. And that is an impressive group of outfield prospects they have there. Talked about Churio, Freelick, Mitchell, Joey Weimer, another top 100 prospect that the Brewers have um, in the outfield. And I was going to ask, is there a, an organization that has a better group of outfield prospects. And Jim, you you can 
probably answer this question off the top of your head because I think somebody, yeah, I think you just answered this question as part of a, a bigger question from an inbox question last week. Is that right? The, well, you were half right because I did half do that. Right. I, I cannot answer it off the top of my head because it is too early here in Arizona and my, <laughs> my brain is fried. So I'm trying to uh, find my story. I honestly cannot remember. I know you I have. I know the Cubs also have three top 100 prospects in the outfield. I don't but think I, it was them either. I think, um, well, Washington is pretty deep. The Nationals have three. It was, yeah. it was Washington that I. Yeah, they have three in the top 50. Yeah. Yeah. And they have, and that doesn't even count Christian Vaquero, who was one of the best um, prospects in his international class, and they have some depth as well. I, I knew I had not picked the Brewers. <laughs> I remember that part, but before Sam mentioned the Nationals, I was scrambling to find the story. I could not pick. remember who my pick was, but yeah, it was the Nationals with James Wood, Robert Hassel, Elijah Green, Christian Vaquero, and I think they've got Sam. You do that list, right? I think there's six other outfielders on their top 30 besides the big four. Yeah, T.J. White is another of their big ones. Jeremy De La Rosa, Dalen Lyle is coming back from Tommy John surgery. Royce Mar Quintana, who just needs to be healthy. I mean, they they're going to be pretty stacked at every level. I mean, they're already talking about T.J. White moving to first base because they only have so many outfield spots, and they're like, we're just going to start this now. Um, we're not going to wait and and try to get you like five starts a week in the outfield and keep moving these pieces around. We're going to start forming a depth chart now, which I think is fascinating. Uh, but they are just too deep. It's it's a good spot for the Nets to be in a place where they do need to be after you know all the trades they've made. Okay, back to the World Baseball Classic. Got off on a bit of a tangent there after talking about Sal Frelick, who's playing for Team Italy. Another highly ranked prospect who has impressed. He impressed in the qualifiers as well, but you know this is a, a little bit of a, a different story when you get into the actual tournament facing uh, for the most part, higher caliber competition. Uh, Harry Ford, uh, Sir Harry Ford, Lord Ford, uh, playing for Great Britain, uh, has homered twice. And prior to this World Baseball Classic, no player had ever homered before their 21st birthday. And we've seen it now three times, Harry Ford twice, and Owen Casey went deep as well uh, before turning 21 in this tournament. But uh, Harry Ford is... Uh, Impressing. No, I mean, you know, the thing you have to remember, too, is that's not one of the stronger lineups. You know, Great Britain, I mean, they've they, they've played, I think, you know, even maybe a little bit better than we thought. But it's not like he's getting a lot of protection. And unlike a lot of the prospects, you know, like you just noted, I mean, he's on the younger end. So to come in and, and go deep twice, I mean, we already knew he was, you know, extremely athletic. For a catcher, I, mean, he's, I don't think there's any question he's the best. He might, he's got to be the most athletic catching prospect in the minor leagues. And, you know, now he's turning into Josh Gibson. He's homering, it seems like, almost every game he plays in the WBC. And if you're the, the Mariners, I think you have to be really enthused. You know, again, I mean, it, it's three games. They're not going to put Harry Ford straight in the big leagues. But, like, like if Harry Ford had, had played for Great Britain and gone, one for 16, I don't think anybody would have held it against him. He would have said, like, look, you know, I mean, big stage, not much protection in the lineup, you know, facing, you know, probably a lot of these guys, you know, are better than he's faced in the past. And, you know, the, the, you know I mean, the, I don't even think he's played, you know, he'll probably get to double A at some point this year, but super impressive. You know, I, I was impressed when he homered the other night and then he did it again. So I don't know, maybe, maybe he's got another home run in him. He's only one off the tournament lead at this point. Sam, who are some uh, prospects who have impressed you 
on the on the big global stage. Yeah, I mean, since I am filling in for Jonathan this week, I feel like I have to say Edouard Julien, um, who I spoke to in Twins Camp and told me he prefers Eddie. Uh, yeah. I don't know if that's ever going to come to his MLB page or not, but he prefers Eddie just basically because he's a little concerned people are going to think he's too French, uh, which was an interesting thing for him to tell me. Uh, but Julian, what do we know about him? Like, what's the first thing we think about is the guy takes walks. He led the minor leagues in walks two years ago in 2021, continued to put up strong OBPs last year at AA and in the Arizona Fall League. We know he's got a patient approach. Um, what he was telling me in Twins Camp was one thing that switched for him in the last year was trying to attack the first three pitches, um, trying to win those. Like, it, not trying to overswing, not trying to expand the zone or anything. But he realized, hey, people know I'm patient now. So if the pitch is there, I need to hack it. I need to give it my A swing. I need to go for it and take advantage of the, the softer stuff or the more hittable pitches they're giving me early because they know I'm trying to get it to three balls and, and take a walk. So what does he do in the World Baseball Classic? Swings at the first pitch he sees, drives it for a home run. It, it was really funny to see that approach play so well on such a big stage that quickly. Um, and in that opening game against Harry Ford and Great Britain, not only did he have the homer, in classic Julian style, he also walked four times. Uh, it was exactly what you would think Edouard Julian would be there. He's been Canada's leadoff hitter. Um, unfortunately, we're talking here uh, you know, on Tuesday, so it comes after the day after Canada was run ruled by the United States. Uh, but I think a big part of their success is getting Julian on base in front of Freddie Freeman and letting him play to his strengths. They're letting him play at second base. We have some defensive questions about that, but it seems like that's where he's going to be both for Canada and the Twins. And I'm sure he's making fans north of the border and, and people who may not have known him beforehand are probably arching an eyebrow right now. Hey, look at the uh, the guys in the World Baseball Classic who have walked as many or more times as Julian. You see names like Otani, Trout, Goldschmidt. I uh, got three hitters from the... Uh, Team Japan squad, uh, which is formidable. And Dominic Fletcher in there as well, another uh, prospect who's played quite well in the tournament. Um, and then and Canada, Jason, has played fewer games than anybody in the tournament at this point, too. He's only played two games. Some of those guys have already played the, the full four games in the, in, right. in the first round. So I, I don't know if we... Well, I get, we should not gamble on baseball, so I'm not advocating any of us doing this. But if, if people could bet on who's going to lead the first round of the WBC in walks, Edouard Julien or Eddie, Eddie Julien might be a good, uh, good bet. We're going to have to break the news to Jonathan that, he, that he, he needs to retire his French pronunciation of Edouard Julien, and, and we have to just call him Eddie now. Let's, let's hear him say Eddie with a French lilt. <laughs> Eddie. Uh, how about somebody on the mound, Sam? Yeah, so this one is a little bit more of a sleeper. We've talked about guys who are either in the top 100 or, in Julianne's case, kind of on the cusp of the top 100. This guy's the number 13 prospect for the Milwaukee Brewers. He was their minor league pitcher of the year last year, six-round pick in 2021. But a Nicaragua na native uh, started for them in their game against Puerto Rico, Carlos Rodriguez. He had four innings. He only allowed one run, gave up one walk, struck out three. And that was in a game, you know, against Puerto Rico's side. You look at the final score, it was 9-1 Puerto Rico. So you would think the starter probably didn't do very well. Actually, Carlos Rodriguez did very well uh, holding off that team. He got 
I think it was seven swing and misses. Three of them came against the changeup, and three of those, all three changeups were against Francisco Lindor. I mean, this is a pitch that is clearly playing against Major League bats. He also got swings and misses against Christian Vazquez and Javier Baez and Neftali Soto. Um, you know, these are not small names that he was performing well against. One thing, watching that game, looking at some of the Satcast data, it seems like he's working with a harder slider, more of a cutter now. Um, that's the plurality of his pitches. He can also hit the mid-90s. He was getting up to 94, 95. Um, the changeup, I still think, is his best pitch. But for somebody who, you know, again, was their, their uh, pitching prospect of the year last year, reached high A, and then getting thrown on the world stage like that for four strong innings against a really good Puerto Rico side, is certainly only going to help Carlos Rodriguez. And again, put him a little bit more on the map than he was uh, going into the year, not just for people who follow Milwaukee, but Nicaragua fans or anybody who's been following that pool out there in Miami. All right. And speaking of Nicaragua, Sam, Tell us, tell us this very cool story that you, you kind of helped uncover yesterday. Yeah, I, it was really interesting watching Nicaragua's game uh, here on Monday and seeing them go against the Dominican Republic because I know Dominican Republic lost their first game. I still think they're the, the favorites of this entire tournament. That lineup is insanely deep. So then all of a sudden you have this five foot ten right-hander come up for Nicaragua, Duque Hebert. He's going up against... Juan Soto, Rafael Devers, Manny Machado, Julio Rodriguez, like an all-star team of one inning. And all of a sudden, he's getting three strikeouts. He struck out Soto. He struck out Devers. He struck out Rodriguez. He gave up a double to Machado on a slider he let high. But, like, the talk on the broadcast was this was the Nicaraguan Winter League, which is not an elite Winter League by any means, rookie of the year. So at least he has something. But he he's never pitched an affiliated ball before. Now he's getting strikeouts on a changeup that looks – Plus, to my eyes, I mean, Juan Soto was left shaking his head after swinging over the changeup. Like, who is this guy? What does he have? Um, he was mixing in sliders. The fastball was only upper 90s, which probably tells you why he's never been signed before. But then all of a sudden we hear after the game, I, I tweet out some data about him. I'm like, hey, you know, he's probably getting some calls. And I get a tweet in that, no, he, he has signed with the Tigers. And I'm like, oh, OK, I guess I missed that. No, no, no. He just signed with the Tigers. A Tiger scout was watching the WBC game, went up to Hebert afterwards, asked him some questions, and was like, do you want to sign with us? And he agreed to a minor league deal with the Tigers on the spot in Miami. And it was announced to the Nicaraguan team, like on the team bus. It was such a cool story. We'll see what's going to happen with him. I think he's going to have to add a little bit of velocity. He's probably going to be hit a little bit more. But that change was so, so good to get Juan Soto swinging like he did and, and the slider looked pretty good, too, getting a swing and miss from Julio Rodriguez. It's a story I'm going to be following. I really want to see him reach full season ball uh, this summer and see what this stuff can do. But uh, it's already feeling a little bit like a Disney movie. And went all uh, Carl Hubble on these guys. Um, okay, so let's uh, wrap up our World Baseball Classic talk here. And let's talk about a story that we have coming up this week, uh, Depending on when you're listening to this podcast, it'll uh, either be up shortly or is already up uh, talking about the best fastball in each organization. Uh, So to clarify, this is not simply uh, the pitcher who throws the hardest, but it's the best fastball. Got to have some command of it. It's got to have some movement. Um, how, How many 
how many 80 grade fastballs do we have on the top 100? Do you guys know? Well, I do because I looked at it last night. Good, because I don't. I wasn't I wasn't quizzing you. I was <laughs> actually asking. I, I don't know. What, we have we have one eighty fastball on the top one hundred. That's it. Okay, and that belongs to Daniel Espino. To Daniel Espino, who's currently sidelined. But you know, we we I won't go into my my for the fifteenth time on podcast history my lengthy recitation of seeing Daniel Espino on the on the backfields last year. But I mean, it it's it, it's he can make it move in different ways. He can throw it up to 102 miles an hour. He's blown everybody away with it in the minor leagues. And if he stays healthy, I don't, he's got other stuff to go with it too. I don't think there's any way he's not a star if he stays healthy, but it, it, he was a pretty, I think, I mean, he was only, only 80 on the top 100, but I mean, he was a pretty, even if we weren't looking at grades, I think he would be the first guy who would come to mind on the top 100. If you were saying who has the best fastball, like I, I think he's a pretty easy choice, even though there are a lot of great fastballs on the list. Does that does that make sense, Sam? Yeah, no, definitely. Uh, you know, you look at some of the other names that we have here. Grayson Rodriguez has shown pretty good movement on it and velocity. Cade Cavalli, the command hasn't been great, but the velocity's been good in the past. Um, Bobby Miller, who we talked about earlier, like the, there's some good heat on the list. But when you talk about both movement and velo that Espino was showing. Um, he would immediately come to mind for sure. All right. And we, we do have some 80-grade fastballs that belong to pitchers who are not on the top 100, correct? We do. I, I, I actually did I did more podcast research pre-pod, pre, the, the night before, because I knew I was getting up early. We have, I, I did the research. I, I sorted a Google Doc. It took me forever. Like, it's really extensive research. For our Google Doc, with all our grades in it, there are four 80 fastballs among our 30 top 30s, including the aforementioned Daniel Espino. The, the three non-top 180 fastballs among our 900 prospects ranked belong to Ben Joyce of the Angels, Daniel Palencia of the Cubs, and Abner Uribe of the Brewers. And I mean, we've talked about Ben Joyce on this podcast several times, I and mean, he threw 105 last year at Tennessee, came out of the draft in the third round, went straight to double A and, and performed well. Um, so the Angels are, are moving their prospects very quickly, especially on the pitching side. So it'll be interesting to see. You know, we could see Ben Joyce in the big leagues this year if he throws strikes. I mean, as we've talked about, I think the biggest issue with him is just he was handled very carefully at Tennessee because of his injury history. And we haven't seen him pitch on consecutive days or what his stuff looks like on consecutive days, which, you know, if you're a reliever, you're going to have to pitch more often than, than he pitched at Tennessee, which had the best pitching staff in the country last year. But he's super interesting, and, and, and so is Palencia. The Cubs got Palencia from the A's in a trade for Andrew Chafin. And even though he's only five foot eleven, he, he's listed at 5'11", 160. He is probably closer to 5'11", 220. So he's not 5'11", 160, but he's not, a, he's not a big guy. But he's got just a really, really quick arm, 96, 98. As a starter last year, up to 102, he's got that carry up in the strike zone. And the Cubs are a little bit like trying to figure out what exactly they want to do with Valencia. They, I, I think the consensus within the Cubs organization is that he's probably – they've really added a lot of pitching the last two years. And he might be their most underrated pitcher um, in the system. And the question is, do you continue to develop him as a starter – 
because he's got a pretty good slider. He's going to have to throw more strikes, but it, you know he's he's got some control. Um, you know, he'll need a changeup, or you just put him in the bullpen, and he he might be in the big leagues this year. You know, he's only pitched in high A, um, but I think some of it could depend on how the Cubs uh, perform this year. If the Cubs contend like they hope, and they need bullpen arms. They may put him in the bullpen and try to get him to the big leagues in a hurry. And then Uribe, Sam, I know he's one of your guys, and we, we saw him in the fall league as well. Yeah, in the fall league, I mean, he was coming off a knee injury, didn't put, pitch much during the year. So I was wondering how the velo was going to return uh, for him just because he didn't have that many innings. He was sitting 98-99. I mean, even before that, I had heard of him touching 103 uh, and it's a sinker, so there's movement on it too. This is not just a, a pitch that he's zooming in there with a little movement. There there's some movement to it too. Um, he's you know kind of a big, strong guy, at six foot three, over two hundred pounds, long limbs, gets close to the plate. It's tough for guys to to touch it. I mean, I know there are times when you'll watch him and he throws more sliders because he trusts the command of the pitch more. But if he lands that fastball, um, at that velocity and with that movement, it's going to be an elite pitch and, and makes him a potential closer someday for Milwaukee because unlike you know some people you were mentioning, he's relief only. That's the only way he's going to get there, especially with some of his injury questions of the past. But it seems like every time he pitches in the spring, this was true last year before the knee. This has been true this spring. Craig Council talks about him, and it's just like, yeah, we know he's a part of our future. We want to get him here as quickly as we can. We just want to make sure – He's building the blocks, but you touch triple digits like he does pretty consistently. It's really fun to watch. All right. I, I know you guys want to touch on one other favorite fastball among prospects each. But before we do that, I wanted you guys to talk about someone who kind of ties into both our uh, WBC talk and our best fastball talk. We got to see a guy uh, pitch for Columbia who who kind of just burst onto the onto the scene and into global conscience when he he came on for Columbia and struck out four, was hitting 102, uh, Guillermo Zuniga, and uh, he kind of straddles, uh, you know, the territory of, of both of you because, Jim, he was in the Dodgers organization and has since uh, moved on to the Cardinals organization. So I think you both have a, a little familiarity, but what what can you tell us about this guy? I want to say, I think we saw him in the, and I might totally be imagining this, but he came up, he never made the Dodgers top 30 list. And I thought I was going to swear that I'd seen him in the Arizona Fall League and I hadn't. He came up, I mean, because he did have a live arm and I cannot remember what context he came up in. You know, he's a reliever. The Dodgers system was deep, so he never made my Dodgers list. Um, but, you know, while he while they had him, I mean, he, he showed velocity. He was striking guys out. You know, the control was okay. Um, you know, just a live arm, and, and we've seen that on display in the WBC. Yeah, I mean, he's right now, I think, I feel comfortable in saying this on a podcast, he would be number 31 on, on the Cardinals list. He was just on the outside. I know when I was sending this out for feedback, um, he came up a little bit, and then even Jim mentioned, like, oh, maybe consider him, and I, and I did. Um, it's just the questions about the command. Like, you can throw that hard, but are you going to be able to fill in the strike zone? And the, the Cardinals have a pretty deep list um, as it is. So he just missed. But, I, again, when you're touching 102 on a big stage like this, a lot of people are going to be like, oh, that's that looks like a guy. What happens, you know, can he throw more strikes? He wasn't even really doing it this winter either in the Colombian Winter League. He had four walks and five innings. Um, so 
can he harness that stuff? We'll have to see. And can the slider be an above average pitch? I want to see a little bit more out of that. But, you know, it, not many people can throw the ball like Zaniga has uh, in the World Baseball Classic and Minor League Baseball and Major League Baseball. Um, so that sometimes velo is enough to get you uh, noticed, and, and he's certainly proving it so far. Okay, so we talked about guys who have 80-grade fastballs, uh, whether they're on the top 100 list or not, but a couple guys who, I guess, don't have 80-grade fastballs but have fastballs to be reckoned with. Uh, Jim, a, a personal favorite of yours? Yeah, I was going to say, like, my, my extensive research, we had four 80-grade fastballs and we had six 75-grade fastballs. And I think both Sam and I are going to mention a guy with a 75 fastball. We couldn't quite go to 80, uh, but thought about it. And what's interesting is, uh, a real quick quiz, this has become a very long podcast. Of those 10 pitchers with a 75 or 80 fastball, two-part quiz, what is the highest control grade any of them got? And how many of them had that control grade, had even, even that? Do you have any idea what the highest control grade would be on – any of these big-time fastball guys? I'm going to guess 50. it's 50, yeah. It is 50. But And how many of those 10 had even 50 control? Two. Two. Well, then, boy, you guys both get gold stars for both of you. Yes, really? two. Wow. Yeah. Uh, Daniel Spino, we gave a 50. I guess I gave out both 50s. So maybe I'm I'm Mr. Generous. And then I gave a 50 to Nick Frasso, who, you know, Sam mentioned Bobby Miller being on the top 100 is having one of the best fastballs. Bobby Miller does not have the best fastball. You know, it's a really good fastball in the Dodgers system. That would belong to Nick Frasso, who they acquired last season in the Mitch White trade from the Blue Jays. And it's 95, 97 to 100, but even better than the velocity. He gets a lot of extension in his delivery, so it, it seems like it's more like 100 to 105, I think, with how quick it gets on guys. It's got really good arm side run. It's got carry up in the strike zone. And he throws strikes with it. it, it it's an explosive fastball. And, and I think Frasso could be a guy. He could be, if we, I, I, we do a one for each team store at some point on guys who could break out. He, he could be, it, if he makes a top 100 prospect list, it would not surprise me this year because he's a guy who had first round um, potential in the draft in 2020, but he had a forearm strain, didn't really get to pitch much in the shortened draft. And he's been spectacular. In pro ball, um, he's healthy now. He had a, a surgical procedure while he was with um, – he had elbow surgery, but not Tommy John with the Blue Jays. Came back last year and had a 183 ERA. He had 76 strikeouts and 54 innings, and I think this guy could really take off. So he's my my most interesting non-80 fastball uh, in baseball. All right, and how about you, Sam, your most interesting non-80 fastball? Yeah, if you're t talking about guys with 50 control, this is not that guy. I want to be very clear about that up front. Uh, mine is Bryce Montes de Oca, the number 22 prospect in the Mets system. I guess I've made a lot of Mets picks today. Uh, something about that. But with it, Montes de Oca has kind of become like a social media phenom this spring. He, he made a major league debut last year, making three appearances out of the bullpen. Um, but you watch his stuff, it's... 98 to 100, he can go above that. He can touch 101, 102, and he does it with a lead extension. He's got six foot seven frame, um, so he's getting close to the plate to begin with. And then the arm side run on it is like 20 inches. The ball zooms to his right when he throws it. Now, I think sometimes people get too caught up in that, and they look at it and say, like, wow, look at that ball move. It's insane. Guys are going to be fooled by it. 
I also don't think he knows where it's going all the time, which is a problem. If you watch his delivery, there's a lot of moving parts. There's a lot of ways he's trying to generate that velocity going towards home plate, trying to generate that extension. And it's his biggest bugaboo. He, he does not really hit his spots. Now, the ball moves enough that guys can still be flummoxed by it, still swing and miss like they have. I think it was Andres. No. There was somebody who swung it the other day and just looked foolish uh, because of what Monte Steele does with his fastball and that run. Um, so it's fascinating. It's it's a fastball alone that will get him more major league looks this year. The thing right now is Russell Dorsey was reporting the other day that he has a stress reaction in his right elbow, no ligament da- damage. I know there was some concern about um, his injury this spring. What is that going to mean? It's going to be reevaluated in a week, so we'll find out. But I think he's going to get innings for the Mets this year just because of the specialty of that one pitch. Yeah, I'm glad you brought him up, Sam, because he was one of my – I, I called him perhaps the biggest enigma in the 2018 draft. He fascinated me in college at Missouri. He had Tommy John in high school. He had an older nerve transposition when he was in college. He got drafted three different times. It, it was hard to see him pitch, but when he did, it was crazy stuff. And it sounds like he's basically the same guy in terms of fastball velocity and life and lack of control. Any concerns about the health even five years later. But uh, uh, Bryce Montesteokas, Sam, you do our, our Mets list and you oversee our Royals list. The only two guys on our 30 top 30s with 35 control grades are Bryce Montesteokas and Stephen Cruz. So, they, so he has one of the best fastballs and some of the worst control of anybody on our list. So he's, he's still the same kind of profile that he was five years ago when people were trying to figure out where he should go in the draft. But, man, when he can locate the fastball, it, it, it's unbelievable. Yeah, and the reason why we rank him now, despite having a similar profile, is he was healthy last year, and he's shown he can live with it. Like, he's gotten AAA success now. If that's just who he's going to be, you always wonder when he's coming out of college, well, oh, sometime it's going to blow up on him at A AA or AAA. It hasn't happened yet. Um, the control is going to keep him from being – the heir apparent to like Edwin Diaz as a closer, but he could get big innings because that, that stuff is so explosive. Keep an eye out for that story, the best fastball in each organization. That'll be up on MLB.com slash pipeline. Uh, let's wrap this thing up by answering a question from our old friend, Stevie D. Stevie D ales 97 on Twitter. Uh, says, with the Cardinals outfield looking jammed with a plethora of talent, where do you put Jordan Walker on the field or back in the minors? Uh, I guess I'll take this one first as the, the Cardinals guy. I'm going to say it. I think he should be on the, the opening day roster. I know that they have multiple options in the outfield. You have Tyler O'Neill. You have Lars Neupauer has been doing really well for Japan. I think those guys are locked in. I think those guys need to be either whether it's center and left, pick your side on that one. I'll be fascinated to see where they place those guys, but – I think those two need to be opening day outfielders. But then you look at Dylan Carlson, who is a former top 100 prospect, a, a big name um, switch hitter, hasn't quite performed to the level you maybe would hope uh, out of Dylan Carlson. You know, I think he, a lot of us thought he would have more power. He only hit eight home runs in 128 games last year, just a league average bat, which is notable, but it's not great. And I, Jordan Walker is just somebody you make room for. And if Dylan Carlson, if this is just who he's going to be, bring him off the bench. That profile is much more as a fourth outfielder. 
you know, Jordan Walker, I've said multiple times this offseason, I think he could be the Julio Rodriguez of this year, somebody who is capable of jumping from double A to the majors immediately and finding himself. And um, he showed it this spring. I just think, you know, if you think he's ready and he's getting, he's proving it by getting more and more playing time. I think the big question with him is, is he going to slide head first or feet first? And they're trying to drive that home to him, slide feet first. So you stop hurting your hands and your upper body. Otherwise, I don't know. All the pieces seem to be there. I, I think he's capable enough defensively. He has the arm for right. I know Alec Burleson is also a top 100 uh, name that they could try out there, but Jordan Walker has the highest ceiling of any of them, and he meets every challenge that's been given to him, give him his biggest one yet. That was really well said. I mean, you could certainly come up with scenarios where, okay, they have options. They don't need to put him in the big leagues. He hasn't played in AAA. He has only played, you know, between the last month of the season and the fall league, you know, maybe 50 games in the outfield. You know, he came up as a third baseman. He's not going to displace Nolan Arenado. You, you can make all those arguments as to why you, you can put him in AAA. But I, I think you put it well, Sam. I mean, he has a chance to be a special player. And, and I, I say this all the time. You can have ETAs on guys. And I think the special players, the elite guys, they just blow up your ETA. Um, and they're ready when they're ready. And Jordan Walker coming out of the draft, I mean, you knew he was going to hit for power. Uh, I think he's got the most usable power of anybody in the minor leagues. But, and, and he doesn't sell out for it. You know, we saw this in the fall league. We, we, I mean, he, he played well pretty much throughout the whole fall league. Like, he hits the ball hard and he hits it far, but he hits it where it's pitched. He doesn't try to jack everything out to his pull side. And he's hit for average. His hitting ability, I think, is better than people gave him credit for, or at least it was more advanced. And he just transitioned into pro ball very easily. And I think he's a potential – I'm not saying he'll do this as a rookie, but I think he's a potential 40-homer guy. He could hit 280, and I think when he's ready, you make room for him. And I think he's ready. He's played well. I, I don't put a whole lot of stock on the small sample spring training size that it, that it means much one way or another. But the guy's performed very well everywhere he's been. You know, like he could also DH. I mean, I think they've got Nolan Gorman and maybe Juan Yepes, you know, projected to platoon at DH. And, and Gorman's another guy with a top 100 pedigree who hasn't, you know, torn it up. I mean, he's still pretty young. I think he's going to be 23 this year. But again, I just think Jordan Walker trumps Dylan Carlson and Nolan Gorman and Juan Yepes and Alec Burleson. He's going to be better than those guys. And if he's ready to play in the big leagues, and I think he's ready. You know, okay, you know, if some other guys aren't going to get as many at-bats, that's too bad because Jordan Walker is Jordan Walker. I mean, Jason, you're the – everybody knows you're a, a you know, Cardinals fan. I mean, what do you think? Well, I think if you were on the fence about this decision, that there's certainly reason to lean now toward going ahead and having having him on the opening day roster with the incentive that we saw come into play uh, just last year uh, with the Mariners. Uh Certainly, when you're making that consideration now, the benefit of getting an additional draft pick if uh, you believe in your player that you're, you know, that this guy is potentially going to, you know, like Julio Rodriguez did last year win Rookie of the Year, there, there's certainly added benefit there. There's a there's a good article on the Cardinals site uh, by uh, Cardinals reporter 
John Denton, uh, calculating a crowded cards outfield, which takes it into consideration that DH spot, how many opportunities there are uh, between, you know, Wilson Contreras taking up uh, the DH spot a time or two a week. Jim, you mentioned Nolan Gorman. I uh, may want to have you know, some of your veterans like Goldschmidt and Arenado DH every once in a while. And then you have, you mentioned Yepes, uh, Burleson, you know, a bunch of people in play to get at bats. And a uh, phrase that we've heard, that we hear over and over, and we've heard it, I feel like we've heard it a lot, This particularly this uh, spring training, a good problem to have. Everybody seems to have a good problem to have. That That does, in fact, seem like a good problem to have. And a good question to have from Stevie D, as always, coming through with a nice question for us. Thanks to Stephen. Thanks to Tanner Bybee for joining us on the podcast. And thanks, everyone, for listening. That's going to do it for this week's episode of the MLB Pipeline Podcast. Don't forget to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts so you don't miss an episode. If you're enjoying the show or have any suggestions, leave us a rating and a review. Thanks, everybody. See you next week.